somewhere around about Calvary from Perth, I would think. Imagine marching an army on foot all the way from Perth to Calvary, or nearly all the way from Perth to Kalgoorlie. It's a long, long way to march an army and then fight a battle. But needless to say, as we look at this area here, of uh, Zobar, up here, it is still within the region of the area promised to Abraham. So David is not sort of stepping out of line in going against the, these nations at all. Uh, and in fact, Zobar, uh, we might mention at this point, was ruled by Hadadezer. Now we know of Hadadezer from uh, some of the mentions that we have of him in the prophets, particularly perhaps uh, Isaiah. But Zobar was ruled over Hadadezer. And uh, what we find in the second of Samuel chapter 10 and at verse 19 is a further conflict with them. We find that Hadadezer gathered a number of armies at the river Euphrates and there he met Israel in battle. But uh, what we learn, a very interesting little point that is made in the first of Chronicles 18 and at verse 3, it says there that David had decided to establish his dominion as far as the Euphrates, to establish his dominion. So his ideal was not simply to go to war against the king of Zobar, but to subdue that land as part of his kingdom. We find in this battle, of course, that David was victorious. Now, Hadadezer had a very, very strong army. He uh, had a sophisticated armed force, including many hundreds of chariots, of which we've read in that eighth chapter this evening. David did not have any chariots. Chariots were forbidden to the kings of Israel in times of war. David had no chariots, so he had no sort of heavy cavalry in that sense. But without the cavalry, without the chariots, David had a power and a force fighting for him that all the com combined armed might that, the, uh, that Hadadezer could, uh, could bring to bear was no match for the power that fought for David. And you know, very, very often as we consider matters of this nature, that David was not only outnumbered here, but as we shall see a little bit later, he found himself in effect fighting perhaps on three fronts at once. That wasn't his intention, but that was the way it went, and yet he still prevailed. So we need to always remember this lesson ourselves, that although the combined might of the armies that were uh, uh, available to Hadadezer would have been far stronger in actual military strength than that which David could muster or did muster, yet the power that fought for David allowed him to overcome. We always have to remember that in our own times of need. Very often forces seem to be marshalled against us or things seem to be going against us in a way that we know we're no match for in things that we can't handle, that are beyond us. But that same power and that same force is there to fight for us and to, uh, to uh, care for us and to fight our battles for us so long as we remain faithful to Yahweh. And so in chapter 8 and at verse 3, we read that David smote also Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobar, as he went to recover his border at the river Euphrates. This again is a very interesting little point. As he went to recover his border, you see, there is virtually an acknowledgement that the land belonged to the seed of Abraham. But in Rotherham's translation, and I find this particularly fascinating, 
because Rotherham doesn't usually do this. What Rotherham does here is a little different because normally, uh, it doesn't matter what happens, uh, Rotherham faithfully, as faithfully as he was able anyway, sticks to and abides by the Hebrew, the literal Hebrew. But what Rotherham does here is instead of rendering it as he went to recover his border, he renders it when he went to lay his hand on the river Euphrates. Now that is not in the text, but Rotherham has rendered that way. Rotherham is not one to usually paraphrase or interpret what something means. But here is the point. Below that verse, Rotherham has a footnote. And on that footnote, he indicates that this was the rendering in at least four early editions of the Aramaic, the Septuagint, the Syriac and the Vulgate. Now all of those are very, very ancient uh, versions of Scripture. Very, very ancient indeed. And it may well be that they are correct. But whether they are, whether Rotherham's point here is right or not, it doesn't alter the fact that what we find here is that David is there to recover his border and it shows us why. Now in verse 4, as a result of David's victory here, we read that David took from him a thousand chariots and 700 horsemen and 20,000 footmen and David hoffed all the chariot horses but reserved of them for an hundred chariots. Now those words of course speak of a tremendous victory on the part of David and his army. And yet there is one little anomaly there that seems to be a little bit out of place that David reserved 100 chariots. Now why would he do that? When for example in Deuteronomy 17 and verse 16 it specifically states that no king of Israel was to multiply to himself horses and they didn't trust in those things. Uh, for example, if we go over to Psalm 20, we'll find what David says in regard to this matter. And uh, personally, it's my belief that Psalm 20 is actually written to celebrate this great victory that David and the army of Israel had over the king of Zobah, over this man Hadadezer. In Psalm 20, you'll notice, and uh, in... Uh, Verse 7, David says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of Yahweh our Elohim. They are brought down and fallen. There's the might of flesh riding upon these four-legged creatures. Never really seen anything more powerful as an animal. I suppose there are some such as elephants and others as well. But I'm talking about an animal in action. But to see a, a horse, a really brilliant horse with all its muscles pulling and tearing and a horse at full gallop and someone astride it, a mere man or a, a woman astride a horse. It's something to behold and it's something that represents power from a fleshly point of view. But David's point is, some trust in chariots and some in the horses, but we will remember the name of Yahweh our Elohim. Why? Because Yahweh is a power greater than all the horses that men could muster. 
He says, they are brought down and fallen. But we are risen and stand upright. And that's what happened in this very battle. That's the very thing that happened. And so here is the little prayer at the end of verse 9. Save Yahweh. Let the king hear us when we call. And so here we have this beautiful point. And of course, David's whole point in Psalm 20 for the staging of, uh, of, 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 of a, a, a grand psalm to celebrate this victory is in relation to the fact that David reserved 100 chariots. Now what does that mean to us? What are we to understand by that? Is David really saying here that uh, after all chariots are pretty remarkable things and uh, that although he took a thousand chariots he disposed of them all except that he thought it might be nice to keep a hundred for himself. Well, we do not believe that David would do that. But as Psalm 20 expresses to us, David was aware of the utter powerlessness of the might of men with horses in combat against the power of Yahweh. We believe that there's only one logical answer as to why David reserved for himself 100 chariots. And that would be upon the return to Jerusalem to stage a victory celebration to the honour of Yahweh and to parade those 100 chariots in a grand celebrationary parade through the city of Jerusalem for the benefit of all those in the kingdom to see. And probably that celebration would have been a, a, a march of triumph all the way back from way up here where the victory was gained all the way back through all the towns and the cities that would take David back to his city of Jerusalem. That would have been done not out of pride or arrogance on David's part, but it would have been done to demonstrate what he writes in Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in Yahweh our Elohim. They are fallen, but we are risen. And there is a wonderful aspect of Psalm 20. So here we find the reason why David did this. So in verse 4 and 5, we've read verse 4, verse 5, we go on and read there that when the Syrians of Damascus came to succour Hadadezer, king of Zobar, David slew of the Syrians two and twenty thousand men. Now do you see what has happened here in verse 5? We've already mentioned that this kingdom way up in the north, Zobar, was really in effect a part of the Syrian Empire, although ruled over by a separate monarch. Yet what we find here is that David is now more deeply involved in battle than he had originally anticipated. And doesn't that sometimes happen to us? We set out to conquer a particular foe within ourselves. We set out to conquer something in the flesh and we feel we might may be gaining the victory over it. And then without, before we realise what is happening, something else will beset us or some other trial will emerge. We may be trying to handle and face up to and deal with a particular trial in our life. And before we know where we are, there is another trial emerges. So we find ourselves fighting for our spiritual survival and for the faith within us on two different fronts at once. But does it really matter? It doesn't matter at all. Because if our trust and our confidence is in Yahweh, 
the great Ael of Israel, then he can fight on two fronts or he can fight on 200 fronts if need be. You see, David was not perturbed about this and it doesn't indicate to us that there was any fear on David's part because of the fact as to where his trust was. So what we're reading in verse 5 is that when the Syrians who were in the kingdom south of the Euphrates heard about the great trouble that Hadadezer was in in his fight against David, they went to his aid. Which meant, of course, that David is now there under attack from the north and from the south of this particular area. We might say, in fact, that if David's army is here, he's being attacked from the north and also from the south as these people come in against him from both directions. So that, in effect, David is almost on the point of being surrounded here. But look at verse 6 and verse 7 and 8 and see what we have here. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus. He's conquered the place. And the Syrians became servants to David and brought gifts. And Yahweh preserved David whithersoever he went. Notice that? See, David couldn't lose as long as he had Yahweh on his side. You'll notice at the end of verse 14, the same expression, Yahweh preserved David whithersoever he went. Why? Because David was acceptable to Yahweh. He was a man of faith. His trust and his confidence was in his God. And therefore Yahweh responded to his faithful servant as he will to others, as he will to us in these similar surrounding circumstances. Now in verses 9 to 12 we are introduced to King Toai. Notice what it says there. Then Toai, king of Hamath, heard that David had smitten all the army of Hadadezer. Remember, we already learnt that Hamath was, uh, was one of the borders of this, uh, this uh, kingdom way up here, the kingdom of Zobar. And this Toai was very pleased to see Hadadiza uh, defeated and also the great army of the Syrians to the south of the Euphrates to see them de- defeated as well. Not only defeated, but David's put garrisons in Damascus. It was a complete, a complete wipeout so far as all those Syrians were concerned. Toai, you'll notice, was very pleased with this. Verse 9 says, When King Toai, Toai king of Hamath, heard that David had smitten all the army of Hadadezer, and incidentally we might just mention, as we may have mentioned a time or two before, that whenever we read that word host in the scripture, in the Old Testament, it always should be remembered that it is actually a military term Sometimes it's simply used for the nation of Israel or the host of Israel. But it is basically a military term and therefore mostly we should understand it in that sense. So we would read verse 9 that when Toai, king of Hamath, heard that David had smitten all the army of Hadadezer, then Toai sent Joram his son unto King David to salute him and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and smitten him. For Hadadezer had wars with Toai. You see how the hand of providence will work? Sometimes in the most unexpected ways as far as we are concerned. 
We don't know how much David knew about what was going on up there in the north, but suddenly he finds himself with an ally that had not been there until after he gained his victory over the Syrians. And you know, the hand of God works in such remarkable ways. We've all seen it in our own lives, in different ways, on different occasions. Sometimes we have all been in a situation where we have been under great and severe trial, when we have been able to turn neither to the left nor to the right, nor have we been able to turn around and go back, and there's been nothing in front of us but a brick wall, metaphorically speaking. And then relief will come from an unexpected source. Something will happen. Someone or some set of circumstances will arise. And the relief comes in a way that we have not expected. So in the end of verse 10 we read that Joram brought with him vessels of silver and vessels of gold and vessels of brass. So here's this Toi, king of Hamath, who was so deeply impressed with David's great victory over the Syrians, sends his son Joram to David with gifts of silver and gold and copper. And these gifts, needless to say, Yahweh would do the same with those as he would have done with the chariots. He would have returned them to Jerusalem and dedicated them to Yahweh. Like Abraham, who had gone before him, he would not keep these spoils of war for himself. He wouldn't want them for himself. And you know, all that we receive in this life, really, is for service to Yahweh. And so David would have taken all these gifts back. No doubt a lot of riches here are being spoken of. And he would have dedicated them unto Yahweh because of his desire that ultimately a temple should be built to the glory of Yahweh. And he knew that these things would eventually become of value to that end when it came to the construction of the temple. He's already learned that he himself will not be permitted to build a temple. But we know that right from that time, David himself began to lay up things for that temple. Yahweh gave him the plans for it, which he eventually passed on to Solomon. David began to gather things. He began to plan things for that temple. So all of these things would have been for the dedication of Yahweh. And you know, when you think of the temple and all the gold and silver and copper that are mentioned here specifically, all those things that went into the temple for its beauty and for its glorification, so much of it taken and plundered from the Gentiles, as in fact virtually all the elements that went into the making up of the tabernacle in the wilderness were taken out of Egypt. The same principle. But when the tabernacle was completed, do we imagine for a moment that the Israelites went and got themselves a rubber stamp and went over everything that was in that tabernacle that had been built to the glory of Yahweh and stamped everything in that tabernacle all over it, made in Egypt, made in Egypt, made in Egypt, made in Egypt. And when this temple was finally built, do you imagine that Solomon would have done the same thing and got a, a rubber stamp and gone all over the temple and put on it, made in Egypt, made in Hamath, 
made in Damascus, made in Edom, made in Tyre or wherever? Of course not. It might sound ridiculous to you for me to even put this possibility to you, but I have a reason for doing it. And that is, you see, that when things are taken out of the Gentile lands, as we are, and they are taken out of the Gentile lands from among the nations throughout the world, wherever they might be, for the glory of Yahweh, then that's exactly what they become. The fact that they were made in Egypt originally, or made in Edom, or made in Hamath, or made anywhere else, doesn't mean a thing. Because those things have been turned into something for the glory of Yahweh. In the same way as we ourselves, whatever country, in our case, we'd be rubber stamped made in Australia, most of us. Some would be stamped made in England or wherever. But nevertheless, the simple fact is that things like people can be taken out of the Gentiles and transformed for the glory of Yahweh. And that's what David would have done with all these things. It's a very important lesson in that, isn't it? And of course, Yahweh is more concerned with people than he is about things. So there is a very beautiful and a very powerful lesson for all of us in this. The fact that we are Australian citizens by birth has no relationship to the fact that we become sons of God and daughters of God through the transforming power of the Word of God acting upon us. The Australian aspect of our birth no longer means a thing in the eyes of Yahweh. It's of no value to Him. But if His Word transforms us when we're called to be sons and daughters of the living God and we then become His then our origins don't matter. It is really a question of what Yahweh's word can do to transform us into what he wants that is important. And that's the real issue here. So David here once again is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ who will take of the riches of the nations to make the temple of Yahweh glorious and beautiful. You might recall there's a mention of that in Haggai chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9. And you might recall the reference in Isaiah 60, dealing with the temple, where it says in chapter 60 and at verse 11, that the forces of the Gentiles shall come unto Yahweh, to Jerusalem, for the beautification of the temple. But you'll notice there in Isaiah 60 and verse 11, the margin more correctly renders it, the wealth of the Gentiles. And so wealth will pour into Jerusalem as it did in the days of David in preparation for the building of the temple. In the days of Messiah's reign, wealth will pour once again into Jerusalem for the Gentile nations, often freely in many, many cases. And it will be there to be transformed for the glory of Yahweh, even as men and women have been down through the ages. Whether they're made in Egypt or made in Edom, or made in England, or made in Germany, or made in Australia, or whether, is irrelevant. Because once they have been changed, and moulded, and transformed, they become for Yahweh's glory. And that becomes the key issue. You'll notice there in verse 10, it's very interesting that only three things are mentioned there that Joram brought. There is mention of gold, and of silver, and of brass. 
Brass, of course, is the Hebrew word for copper, which is a, which is a symbol for the flesh. And if we take those in reverse order, we can make them uh, provide a message for us which tells us that in our flesh we can find the way to redemption and produce a tried and a robust faith fit for the kingdom. The brass or the copper represents our flesh. Silver represents redemption. Gold represents a tried faith. So there it is. In the days of our flesh, we are able to find the way that will lead to eternal redemption by producing in our lives a tried and a robust faith. There are the three great elements of, uh, of, uh, of uh, these things that really matter. Brass, silver and gold. And so there is the lesson for us all. So in verse 11 we read, which also King David did dedicate unto Yahweh with the silver and gold that he had dedicated of all nations which he subdued. So this is the point that we made a little earlier, that David did not want these things to become the richest man in the world. He didn't want to become a wealthy man. Believing that money was power, he didn't believe that at all. He believed that Yahweh, the ale of Israel, was power. That's where his strength lay. And these things that were taken, you know, it would have been so easy, wouldn't it? For him to have taken all these things from these nations that he pursued and said to himself, well, in case anything goes wrong, I may lose the kingdom, there may be insurrection, I may be deposed. In case anything goes wrong, it might not be a bad idea to have a bit of a, a, bit of a, a, a backstop somewhere to uh, invest in a bit of real estate down in Egypt and a bit more real estate over in Babylon because we don't know whether it might be the east or the west or the north or the south or whatever and uh, sock a little bit away, you know, stack it away just as a sort of a safeguard. That never entered David's head. And the same way as far as we are concerned we should never ever allow ourselves to trust in the everyday affairs of life as being our means of sustenance and survival. It's all very well and good to have a larder and a refrigerator and a deep freeze that is full of food and all that we need today because tomorrow we might have nothing. We might have nothing. Remember always the lesson of Job. Job's faith was tried. He went from the crest of a wave to the lowest depths of the sea and yet his faith was never moved an inch as a result of those enormous trials and tribulations. We cannot afford to trust. We cannot even afford, brethren and sisters, to take for granted what we have in this life at the present time. To be able to go home from this meeting tonight and open the pantry door, see it all lined with food, open the refrigerator, the deep freeze, and say, well, we're all right for a few weeks now. Our life might be required of us tomorrow. We simply do not know. That is why every day of our lives we should arise in the morning and express in prayer to Yahweh that he might be with us throughout the coming day. That he might provide for us in the necessities of life, both material and spiritual. And to acknowledge that all that we have, all that we possess, 
even if it's nothing more than a can of condensed milk. All that we have, we have because of His goodness and because of His mercy. And we have to learn every day to trust in Him to provide for our needs, whatever they might be. Because you see, we can do nothing for ourselves. And it's only men and women of the truth who understand that. If I were to go to my neighbours, for example, and try and explain that principle to them, they would no doubt think it was a huge joke. Although in their own way, they're quite nice people. They would not understand that. It is only a man or a woman of God, someone dedicated to the hope of Israel, and who understands a character like David. Why didn't he provide for himself? Why didn't he make himself a rich man just in case anything went wrong? Because he trusted every day of his life that Yahweh would provide. And if the day ever came when Yahweh didn't provide, then David would know that there would be a reason for that. And he would have to be prepared to live with that and to get through that upon the principle of faith. And so in verse 11 here we find that David showed no trace of pride or greed or lust for wealth or anything. All the elements that have destroyed many, many men, some who have started out very favourably in their lives in the truth. But there was none of that as far as David was concerned. He had no desire to serve self. He wanted only to serve Yahweh. And the question was, of course, with what frame of mind would he be able to day by day develop that attitude of mind and disposition? We find the answer in Psalm 16 and at verse 8 in a very, very simple statement. The psalm which represents the Lord Jesus Christ as a king priest. Psalm 16 is the psalm of a king priest. <coughs> and in this 16th, 16th psalm, and at verse 8, we read, I have set Yahweh always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. It deals, of course, with a principle of faith and faithfulness. But you see, the psalm is also telling us in that verse that to be ever aware of the overriding presence of Yahweh, a constant nearness to Yahweh, to be able to reach out to him in prayer, to be able to address him as our Father, as the mighty Ale of Israel, to place ourselves in his hands, to place our cause in his hands, requires a disposition, like Psalm 16 and verse 8. I have set Yahweh always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. You see, the only one who will move under those circumstances is the one who moves away from Yahweh. Yahweh will not deserve a faithful servant. But these are the lessons of life that we all have to learn. And David had learned them. He had learned them so many times. And so verse 13 of this chapter goes on to tell us, And David gave him a name when he returned from smiting of the Syrians in the Valley of Salt, being 18,000 men. He got himself 
unnamed when he returned from smiting the Syrians. What does it mean by that he got him unnamed? David didn't want a reputation amongst men. He got himself a name upon the basis of what we have read in verse 11 of what David would have done with those 100 chariots that he preserved from verse 4. He got himself a name as a man of God and a man of faith. It was totally different to the case of the Ecclesia of Sardis in Revelation 3 and verse 1 where there of that Ecclesia we read Thou hast a name that thou livest and are dead. That Ecclesia did not live up to its name. They had a name for being an Ecclesia active in the things of the truth. But the Spirit says Thou hast a name that thou livest and are dead. But this is not David. David has a name that is recognised for a godly disposition. And of course, above all else, he has a name in the eyes of Yahweh. That's what is really important here. We don't desire to seek a name among men, among our fellow men. We don't want a reputation. Even in the ecclesial world, None of us seek a, a reputation to be a, a, a brilliant person in the truth with a tremendous knowledge of the word or a, a brilliant expositor of the truth or tremendously active in certain things or whatever. We don't want reputation. What we want is just one thing. We want a name in the eyes of Yahweh. It doesn't matter what men think of us. Doesn't matter what the world thinks of us. It doesn't really matter where, what our standing is even within the ecclesial world, does it? That's not important to our eternal salvation. Unless, of course, we earn a bad name for wrong conduct or for letting the truth down or failing the ecclesia or some conduct that is unbecoming for the name of Christ. We don't want a name like that. But what we do want is a name in the eyes of Yahweh that he will recognise us as a faithful servant. You know, Paul makes this telling comment in the first of Corinthians chapter 4 and in verse 3 and 4 he says, It is a very small thing that I should be judged of man's judgement. He that judgeth me is the Lord. Paul recognised that fully. As you know, he had a struggle in the Corinthian Ecclesia to even be recognised as a true apostle of Christ. There was a strong element in that Ecclesia that wouldn't, didn't want anything to do with Paul. They said, he's nobody. He's a tent maker. We don't need Paul. We can get along fine without him. That didn't worry Paul. There was a faithful element in that ecclesia that recognised him for what he was. He was, after all, the father of the ecclesia. Soon forgotten. But Paul's point was, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of man's judgement. He that judgeth me is the Lord. That's what mattered to him. So, in that sense, like David, he had got him a name. The eyes of Yahweh. 
and he will have his inheritance and his reward in the kingdom. Not in his present life. So, really the greatest example among men of getting a name in that respect is none other than the Lord himself. Of whom Paul wrote in Philippians 2 and verse 9, Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Of course, his name was Yahshua. But then there had been many who had been called that. We have that wonderful hero of the Old Testament, the one we know as Joshua. It's the same name. But there has only been one who has demonstrated that name, Yah saves in the way that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did. That is how God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. And here is David, here in this uh, 13th verse, as a type of the Son of of God, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a very interesting point in verse 13 that we have to uh, mention before we pass on from here, because it is related very much to what we had to say uh, earlier on, near the beginning of our remarks tonight, where David found himself fighting on three fronts at once. But I believe that this is the key to it. Right here in verse 13. David got him a name when he returned from smiting of the Syrians in the Valley of Saul. Now, we've seen David's been fighting the Syrians way up here in the north of the land. Zobar here, the Syrians joining in here, and David defeating them both and even putting garrisons in here. What are the Syrians doing way down in the Valley of Salt, which is at the southern end of the Dead Sea? The Valley of Salt is way down here, a bit below. Including the Septuagint and the very, very ancient Syriac version, supported by other modern versions as well, incidentally, including the Jerusalem Bible, have the word Edom there instead of Syrians. And that makes more sense. In fact, it makes a great deal of sense if it is correct, and we believe that it is. You see, it stands to reason. We understand what flesh is like. The Edomites, who are way down here, here was their area here. The Edomites, who were the most long-standing bitter enemies of Israel of all the nations that surrounded them, You can understand how when they saw David and word came to them that David was not only engaged in battle against Dobar here, but fighting on two fronts against the northern and the southern Syrians, and perhaps they thought he was struggling for survival at this particular point. Isn't it reasonable to think that the Edomites down here in the south would take advantage of that situation? With David embroiled with his army in a conflict up here, but they would take advantage of that to attack him in the south. And we believe that that's exactly what happened. Now I'm going to mention a couple of scriptures where if you put these together, you'll find that this picture fits precisely. First of all, we've got Rotherham's note and other comments from other uh, scholars on the 2nd of Samuel, chapter 8 and verse 13. You compare that with the first of Chronicles, chapter 18, verse 12, and the first of Kings, chapter 11, 
and verse 16. And then add to that Psalm 60. And from those scriptures, it could be understood that David dispatched part of his army to handle this new problem in the south. Now it's interesting. In the first of Kings chapter 11 and verse 16, which we mentioned already, it says that Joab was in charge of the operation. But in 1st of Chronicles 18 and verse 12, which we mentioned also already, it says that Abishai was prominent in the affair in Edom. And as well as that, we learn from the 1st of Kings that Joab remained there in the area of Edom, down in the south here, for six months. Now put all that together... And we can see where although Joab was in charge of the army overall, Abishai was next under him. A force was dispatched by David from up here in the north to hurry back down here to take on the Edomites in the south. And uh, that seems to be exactly what happened. But though David had been forced to divide his forces in this way, and was now in a sense fighting on two fronts up here and another one down here, what can only be regarded as overwhelming odds. Yet he, he, he obtained a, a resounding victory in both the north and the south. The only reason, once again, is because Yahweh was with him. In the normal course of events, we can never expect it to happen. Do you know, there are some of us who remember Israel's war of independence in 1948, 47, 48. There are some of us who can remember that when the Jewish state was declared, within 24 hours, four Arab armies poured over the borders of the newborn Israel state, hoping that they would make it stillborn. And brethren and sisters were absolutely awestruck to say nothing of the rest of the world that the Jews, undermanned, underarmed, with no help whatever, the British in fact, had left every single fort in the area of the land that was to be part of Israel, this little strip of land down here, every single fort was left in the hands of the Arabs. To the Jews they gave nothing when the British pulled out. They gave them absolutely nothing. They had hardly any guns, ammunition, they were not a trained army. An incredible number of their army at that time were boys and girls of 14, 15, 16, 17 years of age. If you want the proof of that, just go to the war cemetery in Jerusalem and walk, spend an hour or two walking up and down through the graves there and you will find the graves of the soldiers who fought and died in that war, outnumbered 100 to 1. And you'll find such and such a girl, the girl's name, aged 15, and then perhaps a couple of boys buried together in a grave, one aged 16, one aged 17, or something like that, row after row after row of them. Those kids that had gone back there, they fought for that land. They fought for the survival of Israel. How did they do it? How could they possibly do that? The same way, in the sense, that David did it here and here. Because Yahweh fought with them. 
And that was not because they were like David. Because many of them went back there in total unbelief of even the existence of a God in Israel. We wouldn't say that they understood the truth when they were fighting Yahweh's battles in that sense. But Yahweh had decreed that the Jews were to go back into that land. That they were to take that land and they were to keep it until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the Jews would be an occupation of that land, returning thither, as Brother Thomas says, as agriculturalists and for commercial reasons, they would be there on that land at the time the Lord Jesus Christ returned. Yahweh had to make sure that happened. He fought those battles. No one can ever tell me, having lived through those years, and watched those battles, read the newspapers day by day, listened to the news reports, that those Jews ever survived by their own arm or their own strength. They couldn't have done it. And you see, David was not trusting in the arm of flesh. He was not trusting in the things of the flesh in any way whatsoever. But nevertheless, Yahweh gave him a resounding victory in the north against two separate armies and in the south against the Edomites. And so that then brings us to the fourth campaign, which might seem a little bit odd, but it all follows on in sequence because the fourth campaign was down here against Edom, the great kingdom of the Edomites. So how does that follow on then from, uh, from what we've just been saying? Well, in the second of Samuel 8 and verse 14, which we're going to read in just a moment, and in the first of Chronicles chapter 18 and verse 12, we can see what actually happened next. And it was that David, having settled matters in the north and completely defeated all the armies then, up, up in that area, then travelled to the south to Edom. And make a note, if you would, of the first of Kings chapter 11 and verse 15 which makes this abundantly clear. So having won an initial victory, that is enough to keep fight off the Edomites and to keep them out of the, the, the land of Judah, having won an initial victory, David was now determined to consolidate that situation in the south by making a large-scale invasion into the Edomite territory, which is exactly what he did. And of course... Down through there, he had to destroy their power. And the greatest difficulty that David had in this fourth military campaign, notice in verse 14, he put garrisons in Edom. Obviously, this means after a great battle, after a great struggle. Throughout all Edom put in garrisons, and all they of Edom became David's servants. And Yahweh preserved David whithersoever he went. And you know the greatest difficulty that David had in overcoming the Edomites was in gaining entrance to the city of Petra, which was regarded as an unassailable fortress. Because the city of Petra could be entered only by a narrow seek, as the Arabs call it. It's spelled S-I-Q. And uh, incidentally, the name Petra is a Greek word we have today, uh, taken from the word rock. So, they had to get into this city through this narrow seat, very narrow opening. Now, it's an incredible thing 
to enter into the site of the ancient city of the Edomites, their capital city, through that seek. I haven't actually measured it, but it is said that it's about one and a half miles long and in places it's only a few metres wide. And as you walk through there, or go through there by horseback, as we did, you look up on these, these huge towering rocks that just go simply go straight up. It's as though it was a huge mountain and someone got a, a couple of saws and just sawed a narrow piece out of the middle like that and scooped it out so that people could go through. Remarkable, obviously, it's part of the divine purpose that it was done that way. But these rocks on either side, they just go up literally hundreds of feet. And the idea of trying to take this city with these huge rocks going up here and, and room for only a few men at a time to march through, it was a city that was easily defended by a very small army. A small army could hold up, hold up a huge army because they could not attack on a wide front. Now, keeping a hand in the second of Samuel chapter 8, come with me, if you would please, to Psalm 60. And notice what we find here, where we find David's victory over Petra. David's victory over the Edomites. In Psalm 60, here we have David saying, in verse 8 he says, Moab is my washpot. Over Edom will I cast out my shoe. Philistia, triumph thou because of thee. David's victory over all these various nations. But in verse 9, who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? And then look at verse 12. Through God, Elohim, we shall do valiantly. For he it is that shall tread down our enemies. What did David and his army do? They made this operation a matter of prayer. They knew that from a human standpoint, it was the most impossible city to invade anywhere in the Middle East. Anywhere known to man. As we've said, a small army at the other end could hold up a huge army because they couldn't get in except in very small numbers. What did they do? Psalm 60 lets us know that they made it a matter of prayer. David knew, and the men of Israel knew, that only Yahweh could give them that victory. That's all. The only way they could get in there. So with faith and trust in Yahweh, and with great personal courage, the men of David made the attempt I think they're very important words. They made the attempt, which means that from a human standpoint they couldn't hope to succeed. But if Yahweh was with them, they would succeed. They would win that battle and they would overcome and, dest and destroy the city of, of Edom. With courage and determination, and above all else with trust in Yahweh, they would do it. And brethren and sisters, with all the problems of life that we had to face, all the different trials that bear in upon us from time to time, we need that spirit as depicted there in Psalm 60 that brought David and his army to a great victory over Edom. Who will lead me into the city of Edom? David knew there was no man that could do it. 
But Yahweh, he says, will give us the victory. And he did. And so in that sense, his fourth military campaign was achieved. And so in verse 15, we simply read now, and that David reigned over all Israel, and David executed judgment and justice unto all his people. Aren't they remarkable words? It's almost as though there was perhaps a break in hostilities here. While the army was reformed, David went back to Jerusalem because his fifth, his fifth campaign is going to take him right across the Jordan and right through here into, Edom, into Ammon. And no doubt they needed a little recuperation and they needed time to prepare for that battle. It's almost as though verse 15 is talking about the whole state of affairs in Israel. Despite all these wars, despite what we have here, four major military campaigns, we now read that David reigned over all Israel and David executed judgment and justice unto all his people. You see... He fought valiantly to establish his kingdom. But in so doing, he didn't neglect the needs of his people. And Saul wasn't like that, was he? David saw that judgment and justice were executed rightly and properly so that the needs of all were very carefully considered. And never ever does the word ever say this of King Saul. Saul was not a man of the truth like David. David here, see in verse 15, is the shepherd of Psalm 78, of which we've read several times. Here is David as a shepherd king. And so David brought justice and he brought judgment unto all his people. And next to that I have a note of Psalm 32 and verse 1 and verse 17 which is probably an apt note to finish on here tonight because this deals with the greater than David and shows us what will happen when a wise king sits upon the throne. Isaiah 32 and verse 1 tells us, Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness and princes shall rule in judgment. And the words we just read in the second of Samuel chapter 8 and verse 15 are a type of that. A very clear and a very beautiful type of the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. A king shall reign in righteousness and princes shall rule in judgment. Do you know what the outcome of that will be? In verse 17. The work of righteousness shall be peace. And the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. David, because he was still in the nature that we bear and against which we struggle day by day, was never able to achieve that. But what David struggled for, what he sought for, what he lived for, what he dedicated his life for, he will be there, as we've seen in chapter 7, the previous chapter, he will be there to see these words of Isaiah 32 verse 1 and verse 17 fulfilled. When a king shall reign in righteousness and princes shall rule in judgment. When the work of righteousness shall be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance for the Ola. 
for the kingdom age.